Welcome to episode number two of Cultural Technologies, Dialogues on Media, Art, and Science. I'm Bernard Dionysus Gagan. This episode will be our first venture into the world of academic bootlegging. Rather than presenting an original interview, today's podcast features a recording of a recent lecture by the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek. He gave this talk in Berlin. It's entitled, The Animal Doesn't Exist. In it, he outlines in his original, peculiar, witty, often roundabout way, some of the basic themes of recent research in animal studies. What, you may ask, is animal studies? There's no tight or rigid definition. Indeed, this episode and our next episode will try to get some initial answers to that question. In brief, um, animal studies is often used to name an area of research concerned with animals and their relationship to humans. Uh, for some, animal studies is a way of uh, reconsidering or reposing traditional ethical and philosophical questions, but from a perspective that does not privilege, say, humanist epistemology, a human-centered uh, view on the world. For others, animal studies is a way of expanding traditional questions from the history of science or literary studies or, or art history, kind of any discipline you can think of, taking uh, these fields' familiar research questions and reconsidering them in terms of the dynamic and often intimate relationships that have formed uh, between humans and animals and have shaped human culture. Another important source for animal studies is, of course, um, the, the ethical aspect. Peter Singer's 1970s uh, book, Animal Liberation, was, a, I think, a foundational text for putting ethical questions about the treatment of animals within philosophical and scientific discourse. And I'm sure a lot of people interested in animal studies would also somehow associate themselves with that tradition of work. I don't profess to know all that much about animal studies, uh, from informal conversations with friends and colleagues, I can say I think it's one of the most exciting, one of the most important developments uh, in recent years in the humanities. They had something on uh, on the cover of the New York Times recently about animal studies, so maybe my podcast is not so cutting edge as I might uh, like it to be. In any case, uh, in a week or two, I will release another podcast featuring an interview with the media theorist UC Parika and the historian of science Etienne Benson, where they're going to talk about their recent research on media and animals. As for today's episode, this bootleg is one of a number of programs I hope to do um, as a way of introducing or broaching a theme that's going to be developed over more than one episode. The production quality of the bootlegs is going to be a little bit erratic. I apologize in advance. Today's uh, episode, you'll, you'll be able to hear whispers uh, because the, the recording was uh, done by a friend of mine in the audience. Um, as someone who grew up listening to terrible audience recordings of uh, Jimi Hendrix and Dave Matthews and Led Zeppelin in concert, uh, I've always felt that the, the terrible quality of the, the bootleg is a way that you show your commitment. I don't know if you'll find it as charming as I do. Uh, so, so we'll try not to put up, uh, post anything that's completely unintelligible, but uh, my apologies in advance for any, any difficulties with the quality. Uh, one other thing, actually, I also hope that in the future, uh, will, the program will feature bootlegs submitted by listeners and also um, programs on themes that are suggested by listeners. So if you have anything uh, sitting around on your computer, let me know. I have a ridiculous archive of lectures going back to maybe 2002 that uh, I almost compulsively recorded um, as a graduate student. 
As for today's recording, this lecture uh, took place December 17th, 2011 at Kunstwerk in Berlin, Germany. Uh, as one of the, the most famous and provocative living philosophers, I thought Zizek uh, would be a great way of broaching the question of animals and preparing for our next episode, which has a more in-depth uh, discussion of what's at stake in animal studies. The lecture opens uh, in particular with a superb discussion of uh, the philosopher Jacques Derrida's late work on animals and a, a respectful um, evaluation of where is it, say, uh, the question of animal studies fit into deconstruction and the sort of legacy of deconstruction uh, today and in particular in relationship to questions of the animal. From there, Zizek takes us through his signature gauntlet of seemingly unplanned jokes, asides, interjections, as he outlines what he thinks are some of the defining philosophical and anthropological problems surrounding the animal. About an hour into the talk, Zizek is cut off by the moderators. This is not, uh, from what I hear, this is not an unusual phenomenon for Professor Zizek. Um, with no further ado, I present you Slavo Zizek and his lecture, The Animal Does Not Exist. Let me begin with a strange starting point, because it's not an author to whom I often refer, Jacques Derrida, in his book, uh, The Animal That Therefore I Am. Uh, although this title, the, of course with obvious uh, references to Descartes, although this title was intended as an ironic step at Descartes, one should, I think, take it with more of a literal naivety. The Cartesian cogito is not a separate substance different from the body, as Descartes himself misunderstood his cogito. Uh, at the level of substantial content, I am nothing but the animal that I am. What makes me human is the very formal, formal declaration of me as an animal. Derrida's starting point is that every clear and general differentiation between humans and the animal that we know from the history of philosophy, from Aristotle to Heidegger, from Lacan to Levinas, should be deconstructed. What, what is Derrida's question? And here I think is Derrida at his best. Here I agree with the tendency of his questioning. What, for example, really legitimizes us to say that only humans speak while animals only emit signs? You know, this is the usual answer to that famous example of how one stupid bee finds, finds honey at certain shrub and goes back to the tribe and performs a certain dance which precisely signals what direction, how far is the honey the idea is these are only signals. This is not language proper. Or what legitimizes us to say that only humans experience things as such, while animals are just captivated by their animal life world, the thesis of Heidegger. Or that, like another thesis by Lacan, that only humans can feign to fail, like 
reflectively. I lie that I lie. I tell the truth, but I count that what is literally true will be taken as a lie. Uh, while animals just directly feign or lie. Furthermore, that only humans are mortal experience death while animals simply die. Or that animals enjoy a harmonious sexual relationship or instinctual mating, while only for us humans, as Lacan put it, il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel. Derrida displays here, I think, the best of what I'm tempted to call the common sense of deconstruction, asking naive questions which undermine philosophical propositions taken for granted for centuries. What, for example, legitimizes Lacan to claim with such self-evidence without providing any data or argument that animals cannot feign to feign? What legitimizes Heidegger to claim as a self-evident fact that animals don't relate to their death? As Derrida emphasizes again and again, the point of this questioning is not to abolish the gap that separates men from other animals. It's not to attribute also to animals what we call spiritual properties. This, as you probably know, is the path of some ecoistics who claim that not only animals, but even trees and other plants communicate in a secret language of their own for which we humans are blind, and so on and so on. The point is rather that all these differences should be rethought, conceived in a different way. Now I want to pursue this path. Such a negative characterization of animals, they are speechless, they exchange signals, but they don't speak properly, or, as Heidegger put it, they are uh, wordless, or rather, in a very interesting way, you know this famous passage from Heidegger's seminar in, from 2930, where Heidegger develops this triad of, uh, of uh, dead objects, animals, and humans, and say objects are weightless, without well, they just are stupidly. Animals are velt armed. They have a world, but a narrow world into which they are absolutely captivated, while only humans do have properly the world. And of course, Heidegger himself immediately is aware of the problems here. How can you say that animals are velt armed? I mean, why this limitation? Isn't it that, again, you already presuppose humans? So the question is, are animals that are in themselves or just in comparison with humans? And I like the madness of Heidegger at that point, where for a brief moment he regresses into romantic philosophy of nature, where he claims that what if animal life is in itself then are in the sense that they animals themselves experience their predicament condition as terribly constrained and he quotes here Heidegger quotes here Schelling who speaks about melancholy of all living beings how living nature prehuman nature itself strides towards its liberation, so that this is an old, as you probably know, Gnostic mystical motive, that 
human speech is not just an affair of the humans, it retroactively liberates nature, living nature in its entirety. So, uh, again, uh, such negative characterization of animals, speechless, wordless, engenders the appearance of a positive determination which is false. For example, when we claim that animals are captured by their environs and so on and so on. I think we encounter here the same phenomenon as the one in that is usually at work in traditional Eurocentric anthropology. Viewed through the lenses of the modern Western rational thought as the standard of maturity, the other non-European others cannot but appear as primitives caught into magic thinking or those who really think that their tribe originated from some stupid totemic animal or that a pregnant woman was really inseminated by a spirit and not by a man and so on and so on. You see, the parallel I try to draw is this one, that uh, when modern anthropology, or rather the one from 100 years ago in its early naivety, visited primitive tribes, they projected into them a certain pre-modern naivety, as if those idiots really believed in ghosts, they thought that they really originate from Totem and so on and so on. But it's absolutely clear that this is not the case. This image of the primitive who really believes is immediately caught into the appearance is simply a retroactive construction of uh, sorry. Yeah. A, a retroactive construction of us uh, humans. Uh, if anything, it can be proven that the so-called primitives, or generally neuro-pre-modern people, had, on the contrary, a much more refined sense of reflexive mediation or distance and so on. For example, let me mention a well-known book that I quote all the time, or at least refer to, Paul Vein, uh, Did the Ancient Greeks Believe in Their Myths? Well, he demonstrates that, no, definitely not. The ancient Greeks were not idiots. They didn't think that if you climb to the Mount Olympus, you will then see, I don't know, Zeus screwing Aphrodite or whatever. <laughs> they, no, but, you know, the question is, what then did they think? And Paul Vane also demonstrates that they also, it's also wrong to read it in our enlightened European way a simple metaphoric thinking. You know, people usually say, no, Zeus was for them just a personalized metaphor of some cosmic creative force or whatever. No, this is also wrong. What is difficult for us to accept is that never did, do we reach that point of immediacy where works really meant or whatever. Here, I think, incidentally, we should also reject so-called phenomenological reconstruction of meaning, which is based on the idea that originally we have the full experience which later gets ritualized, emptied, turned into a mere ritual, and so on and so on. You know, like, I don't know, the idea is, for example, shaking hands. Oh, originally it meant a gesture of friendship because it's a proof that I don't hold a knife in my hand, but later it became an empty gesture or whatever. No, I think that precisely there never was this moment of full meaning which 
later became an empty form. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, I claim the distance is here. Which is why, for me, if there is naivety, the most naive position is precisely that of radical deconstructionism. Where do you encounter this naivety? Did you notice how, if you read, okay, now the sky is already a little bit out of fashion, but if you read classical deconstructive works from 20, 30 years ago by Derrida or my personal friend, theoretical enemy, uh, Judith Butler, uh, <laughs> the first thing that strikes the eye is the incredible amount of quotes, sorry, quotation marks and conditional formulations. Like, you know, you will never get them to simply say, for example, my own ironic example, if you ask Judith Butler, what is this? She wouldn't like to say this is a, a, a glass of water. She would say, if we temporarily, for strategic reasons, endorse the essentialist denotative functioning of language, then, and she likes to put it in this, then maybe we can risk the hypothesis that this is the glass of water. <laughs> it's the same as uh, Umberto Eco pointed out that today, in this postmodern reflexive attitude, you cannot even say, I love you. Today, you should somehow qualify it not to appear ridiculous. Like, uh, uh, maybe uh, as a poet would have put it, I love <laughs> But what, where's the mistake? The mistake is precisely in the fear that if I say it directly, I would somehow have meant it too immediately. What the ancient people knew is that even when I say I love you, all the distance, as the poets would have put it, is already included. We are the stupid ones today. We don't get it that also without all those quotations marks the distance is here. So what I'm saying again is that uh, in the same way that modernity builds retroactively an image of natural immediacy, fullness, whatever you want, uh, that the same goes also for this basic divine human animal. So the first ideological critical operation here is, but then there's the second step that is even maybe more crucial. The first step, I think, is to dismantle this myth of pseudo-Hiranian myth. Cable doesn't do this at all. That we start with some naive, beautiful immediacy which then gets reflected, mediated. No, reflection distance is here from the very beginning. For example, <coughs> what is the beautiful beginning for Hegel? Ancient Greece, Antigone, are you crazy? Hegel's whole point of reading Antigone is that the split, the cut, is here from the very beginning. There never is a moment of authentic state. State emerges by way of being split. So again, the first point, of course, is to denaturalize our own opposition by way of introducing the moment of reflexivity distance into the naive other. Again, the very first step is to take into account how this naive other is a presupposition already for others themselves. You know, I read some wonderful uh, anthropological books where they inquire into, for example, one classic book that I read. They went to a tribe 
in Native American, so-called, and uh, Indians, and ask them, do you really think that uh, you originate from that totem or of your tribe, some stupid old bird? And of course, you get always the same answer. Of course, we are not stupid. We don't believe that we originate. But some people, some ancestors told us that way ago there were people who really believed it and so on and so on. And of course, you never encounter people who really believe it. You always encounter just people who heard about the other people that they believed it and so on and so on. No? So the best example I can imagine here of this reflexivity, it's a beautiful story, I'm sorry if you know it, but I like to repeat it. It's, uh, uh, it happened around 200 years ago, I read, I, I read, I think it's in New Guinea. New Guinea. Yeah? Well, so I heard that uh, uh, a group of anthropologists heard that there is in the middle of the island some terrible tri some tribe and that they dance some terrible death death dance with terrifying masks and so on so okay, they went into the jungle finally they did reach this tribe and they arrived in the evening they asked them, could you please dance for us this dance, then they went to sleep in the morning, when they awakened refreshed the tribe members did dance this horrible dance for them. It was exactly what they expected. No horrible masks and so on, terrible stuff. And then they left the tribe and wrote the report. <coughs> Unfortunately, another expedition joined the same tribe uh, uh, 20 years ago and got the true story, which was that uh, these uh, members of the tribe simply wanted to be polite. And they somehow guessed that this stupid anthropologist wanted some terrible dance with death masks and so on. So the whole night they were preparing this mask to satisfy them in the morning. So they were strictly for their own life. So again, this is what, uh, you know, this is the emancipatory moment of Kafka, you remember, at the end of that famous parable in, in the trial, when uh, after the man from the country dies, the doorman says, this door was here only for you. Like, your case was implied for it. That you, in the same way that this dance was constructed for the case of the anthropologists, this image of nature or animal life in its naive immediacy whatever is constructed for our gaze. Rational, rational thought thus engenders the figure of the irrational mythic thought. What we get here is the process of violent simplification which occurs with every rise of the new. In order to assert something radically new, the entire past has to be reduced to some basic defining feature. And now I want nonetheless to defend a little bit this measure. Namely, uh, did you notice how every theory which presents itself as a radical break has to enact this violent retroactive totalization? Like Marx, the thesis 11, you know, like all philosophers still now have only interpreted we now, or Heidegger, all philosophy till me is just metaphysics of presence, or, 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 or 
all his ideology and so on, you, even, even Derrida does this. The idea being the construction, all philosophy is, again, the version of metaphysics of presence, palogocentric, and so on and so on. I think maybe the first step of a truly dialectical thought is to question this retroactive totalization. <laughs> and here, I think, we get two strange bedfellows, Deleuze and Lacan, which, who, in spite of all their differences, they don't do this. One should admit, for Lacan and for Deleuze, they never totalize in this sense the past. They are like, you know, Deleuze speaks how this philosopher, that philosopher particularly, they don't do this retroactive uh, totalization. Uh, uh, but also in a, at a different level, we find the same operation, for example, from our Western Judeo-Christian tradition. We try to throw together all other traditions into the same Oriental or pagan or whatever stance, obliterating the incredible wealth of positions covered up by the term Oriental thought. For example, can you imagine something more different from Indian metaphysics, Upanishads, castes, and so on, than the Chinese Confucianism, which is precisely agnostic, pragmatic stance, explicitly rejecting uh, metaphysics, and so on and so on. So that's, again, the first step of dialectical critique of metaphysics, which should also be applied to animals. We should not forget, as among others, you Roxana were saying before, but others also think that uh, animal is a differential category. Animal emerges, there is no unity of the animal. Animal emerges with the rise of man, and you can complicate the issue, the issue, and this would be a nice, if some of you are stupid young students, I advise you to do and to study philosophy, a kind of a uh, small uh, seminar or what, it would be wonderful, namely, what kind of a seminar? You know, when philosophers say the animal, you can easily discover how they usually have in mind a very specific animal which mysteriously is selected. For example, with Heidegger, is a, it's a lizard, I think. <laughs> but when he always, when in his seminar 2930, he always mentions uh, a lizard they're sitting on a, a lying on a rock and baking in hot sun. So it's always a stupid reason. Like, why not an ape? Why not this? Why not that? No. And so again, sometimes it's an ape or whatever, but I claim, you know, it's always totalized under the hegemony of one animal. Now, in the next step, I want nonetheless to defend this procedure of retroactive totalization. Uh, it's easy to claim here to be against binary logic. But I claim that maybe it's time against all this, oh, you know, one of the easy senses of post easy cheap rhetorical tricks of postmodernism is to, to reject binary logic. When you say this against that, 
if you don't have any good arguments, the easiest thing to say is <coughs> you are caught in binary logic. <laughs> the truth of this bullshit of attacking binary logic is for me a wonderful paraphrase. I bought a book, I hope it's translated into German. Politically Correct Guide to the Bible where they take the biggest tips from the Bible and they translate them in a politically correct way, you know. For example, you know that famous uh, passage, I walk, I walk in the valley of shadow, but I feel, fear no evil, because, and then you have the politically correct version, I love it. I think I told her she was mad at me to Judith Butler that probably she was... I walk in the valley of shadow, but I fear no evil, because I know that good and evil are only binary metaphysical opposites. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the way to answer this is there is even a better one. In a song by a black rapper, you find it. It's even better. It's, I walk in the valley of shadow, but I fear no evil, because I'm the meanest motherfucker in the world. I think the revolutionary Okay, let me go on. So be very careful now when you have this emphasis on multiplicity against binary logic. It usually works to obfuscate a certain central antagonism. You know, this is how, for example, the next step, of course, is then against class binary logic, why only two classes, there are more classes, there are more sexes, and so on and so on. I, I, I think that, that, that uh, even if this retroactive totalization, when you do a cut and violently totalize all that comes before, even if it's in a very violent imposition, there is a moment of truth in it. That is to say, what if the multiplicity of animal forms is to be conceived as a series of attempts to resolve some basic tension which defines animality, a tension which can only be formulated from a minimal distance. So again, you see, this would be for me a totally dialectical solution. What emerges through the animal is, of course, not this romantic bullshit of Oh, the whole nature was suffering. Now we humans liberate nature by starting to talk. But it's only through this minimal distance of speech that retroactively we can formulate what? Not the eternal essence of animality, but the devil of animality. I think the problem of fighting essentialism is not to drop the notion of essence, but to redefine the notion of essence. Here, I'm so sad I don't have the time to go into it because here I have a problem with nominalism. I'm an absolute realist of the universal. Not, of course, in the stupid pseudo-platonic sense of their universal essences, but in the sense of that the proper dialectical relationship between universal and particular is not a nominalist one, but it's to introduce a tension between universality and the particular as such against the New Age bullshit where you say 
particular elements are struggling with each other and universality is the space of the struggle we should say no, the first antagonism is not between particular moments of the universality but between universality and its particular forms what if universality is a name of a certain antagonism and particular forms are attempts to, to mystify to deal with this antagonism this is why, incidentally, I am opposed to this politically correct bullshit of, uh, uh, ooh, there is no capitalism. There are only concrete forms of capitalism. I agree. What concretely exists are only, you know, corporate capitalism, liberal capitalism, capitalism with Asian values, which of course has nothing to do with Asia, but has a lot to do with, with the fact that, and this is a wonderful dialectical point, that today, this is the ultimate revenge of Stalinism, Stalinist communism on capitalism. Okay, maybe Fukuyama was right, communism lost. But look at China. But communists are today the best managers of capitalism. So, uh, we, okay, there are only different capitalisms. But they all try to resolve, obfuscate, control the same antagonism. What unites all capitalisms are not some abstract universal features, but it's a certain deadlock. What if we can apply the same to animals? What do I mean by this? Recall the well-known elaboration of the general equivalent from the first edition of Marxist of Capital by Marx. This is a sentence you find only in the first edition. Marx, and as you know, for the second edition, he rearranged the first chapter and this passage disappears. I quote it. It is as if Marx is describing here the logic of money as general equivalent. It is as if, alongside and external to lions, tigers, rabbits, and all other actual animals, which form, when grouped together, the various kinds, species, subspecies of the animal kingdom, there existed, in addition, the animal, the individual sphere, the individual incarnation of the entire animal kingdom, end of quote. This image of man as the animal, romping alongside all the heterogeneous instances of particular sorts of animality that exist around us, does it not lend itself to capture what, what Derrida describes as the gap that separates the animal from the multiplicity of actual animal uh, uh, life. Now, I want to apply here uh, the big rule of Hegelian dialectics, which, as, uh, as Frank uh, uh, developed in detail in his book on Hegel's Goebel, Hegel didn't follow consequently, namely that in each Hegelian totality or concrete universality, universality itself is one of its own species. It encounters itself among its species as its own gegensätzliche bestimmung, oppositional determination. And this is where Hegel is not radical enough. For example, Rebel. Hegel is good enough to discover the necessity of producing this excess purpose. What he is not ready, but he should have done to posit is that precisely as such as 
non-society, as the element which speaks out. In no place in society, rebel is the only point of universality. It is as if in rebel, in rebel, human as a social being, as such exists. All others are just particular, precisely in the outcast, the universality comes to exist as such. So I would claim, which is then this animal, which is the animal? We humans. This is how I tended to read early Marx's determination of man as Gattungswesen, a being of species. It does not mean that humans are one, some ecologists read this as, oh, you see, Marx was already close to ecology. Humans are one among the species. No, no. Gattungs Wesen means precisely something more radical. A species which relates to itself as a universal being, as a species. Incidentally, Marx is here, of course, very much embedded in German idealist uh, uh, heritage. And uh, I claim that uh, now I want to make my next point. I claim that what if this dust here, this animal as such, does exist and these are we humans. And this is the horror that animals see in us. We are the animal. For precisely as non-animal we are the animal for others, for other animals. So let me go on here, next point. It is not enough to say that, that uh, while the, de the determination of animals as speechless and so on is wrong, the determination of humans as rational speaking beings and so on is right. So again, you want my point, when I oppose this naive idea of defining animals with some immediate capture, like captivation, like animals are just immediately caught into their environment, speechless, vet armed, and so on. The point is not we can see what we humans are, but we mystify the other. The entire field is wrong, which is why uh, the, if the first step is that we should demystify the other, that is to say, animals are not in this sense naive, immediately caught into their environs. Uh, this is clearly just a retroactive projection, a kind of symmetrical mirror image. If we humans can do it, animals cannot do that, and so on and so on. I think that the true mystification is uh, in that what this opposition, standard opposition, you know, human as a speaking, we speak, animals don't speak, we relate to death, animals don't relate to death. What effectively disappears here is not so much what animals truly are in themselves, in the sense of we already reduce animals to our human perspective, they are just reduced to what we are not. What we really miss is the most radical dimension of what we humans are. Here, in spite of their opposition, Kierkegaard and Hegel are, share the same point of opposing becoming, verben, and being, sein. The standard opposition, animal-human, is formulated from the perspective of 
human being. We are already constituted and we measure with our standard reason, speech, whatever, animals. What this perspective cannot think is the human in its becoming. It thinks animals from within the given human standpoint. It cannot think the human from the animal standpoint. Uh, what, do I, uh, what do I mean by this? Uh, 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 here I claim psychoanalysis enters. Now I will provide the formula that I will develop it. I think that the, and here I said that Alenka's bandit, she has some set problems, which uh, why she asked me to, uh, and Vladimir Dolarkuk has different medical problems, and I, as you can see, am ill. I'm getting here KGB upset that there was some reactionary plot to prevent us from coming. She got an operation to take Alenka of her. What is this stupid big bone? Her spine or what? Yeah, some discs there that put pressure on her nerves, and she stopped feeling her legs. Her left leg, which I immediately interpreted as the hysterical disavowal of her left wing orientation. <laughs> but I said because she precisely wanted to develop this, the notion of drive, the Freudian trip, as precisely that, which is not yet culture in the sense of symbolic universe, but no longer, no longer animal instinct. The idea being that something is in between, no longer animal life, but not yet human culture. And here we should, I would like to follow Alenka. She developed this in detail, she wanted to develop it here, of how, uh, I'm so sad we don't have time, how well he is translated here, may assume. After finitude, no? So maybe some of you, you translated it, you published it, okay? So uh, maybe some people are ready. Alenka uh, elaborated, I think, a nice Lacanian answer to Meyasu's two central points. The first one about this universal contingency. Her point is that while agreeing with this point of asserting contingency, the point is that she mobilizes here the Lacanian opposition dialectic of non-all. Meyasu reaps universal contingency in what Lacan would have called masculine formulas of sexuation. A universality, everything is radically contingent based on an exception. Contingency itself is necessary. And Alenka, I think, in a detailed pages-long analysis, Shows how you get a much more provocative result if you apply, apply if you read contingency along the what Lacan calls the feminine logic of sexuation. That is to say, contingency is non-all precisely because you cannot totalize it through exception. Not because something is not contingent, but precisely because there is nothing which is not contingent. And then, okay. Her second, even more triumphant argument against Meyasu, I think, and this is the best introduction to the point I want to make, concerns precisely the problem of fossils. You know the uh, 
you know what this problem is about. Maestro claims that the entire transcendental legacy, transcendental Kantian, <coughs> Kantian philosophy cannot provide a clear answer to the status of fossils. Like, you see a fossil. If you take it ontologically seriously, it refers to something which existed, to cut a long story short, before there was any transcendental horizon, which constituted it and so on and so on. And in a very convincing way, I agree, may I still demonstrate how all the usual transcendental tricks don't work here. But I think that... May I still even, since we were talking so much about Darwinism, no? Here I am on... If we want to isolate the dimension that maybe Darwin didn't see, I would like to rehabilitate, I forgot his name, a well-named, a well-known friend of Darwin, but at the same time a theologist, who, you must know the theory, it's wonderful, Stephen Jay Gould wrote about it, who provided, I think, the best answer, theological answer to Darwinism. He tried to bring together Darwinism and theology. His problem was the following one. Darwinism unambiguously demonstrates that fossils, there was life, blah, 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 thousands, tens of thousands of years, millions before there were human beings. How to bring this together with the uh, well-known fact, which must be true, because, my God, the Bible is true, it's the word of God, that what the world was created, I think, about 4,100 years ago. There is even a wonderful British empiricist claim that God created the world minus 4,025 B.C. at 9 in the morning. It's a wonderful idea that God took breakfast and so on. And this priest, friend of Darwin, proposed, you must know it, a wonderful solution, which I think is, of course, wrong as a scientific theory, but it's beautiful as the theory of ideology. It's that. Of course, how can God be wrong? God created the world 4,200 years, whatever we see, but he created directly fossils as such to give us humans the wrong uh, impression of openness, you know. Like when you create a world for a child and put on windows, like a kind of a, like in movies, you know, when they create the false background so that the world appears larger and much. So the idea, and although, of course, this is maybe nonsense biologically, maybe, but it's absolutely true, I claim, as a theory of ideology. This is how in ideology we are all the time doing it, even literally. You translate it into German, a wonderful book by Eric Hobson. No, he's just the editor, uh, Invented Traditions. It's a wonderful book which goes in different nations. Of, uh, for example, what do you know about Scotland? You know, kilts, uh, you know that kilts, you know that they were invented in the late 19th century. Absolutely nothing to do. No, how most of the traditions that we celebrate as the blah were invented. Invented usually late 19th century and so on. So, but, but we are doing this all the time, I claim. And I claim that maybe every national 
identity is based on fossils, in a way. Because, you know, Ernst Renan, great guy, okay, dirty racist, one of his early scientific French races, but he provided, I think, the best definition of uh, a nation that we can imagine. He said, nation is a large group of people uh, characterized by three features. They are kept together by lies about their past, shared enemies in their present, and stupid illusions about their future. <laughs> I don't know how it is with you, for us, the means, I think this goes to <laughs> We are all together by lies about our past. For example, the most popular lie is now that we are really not Slavic, we are barbarian, we are Etruscans. You know, more Asian than then uh, recent enemies, they change, that's the problem. No? When I was young, there were Albanians, then we lost the rich Serbs were, Albanians were good, now Albanians are also becoming bad, and I must tell you, Croats are, it looks bad <laughs> But there are also Italians and so on. <laughs> and illusions about the future. I mean, the dream of Slovene right-wingers is, let's get rid of the communist plot, you know, Every honest student knows that secretly communists still dominate the nation. No? If we get rid of them, in four years we will be wealthier than Switzerland. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that uh, maybe I would like to combine a truly dialectical Darwinism, which would be the one which would include this dimension, of course, not as a fact but as a necessary fiction constitutive of reality. This, is, this uh, retroactivity is not simply subjective. It's, I will not develop it now, it will take too much time, which I'm already losing. What I only want to say is that it's too simple to say, oh, this is just a retroactive illusion, and so on and so on. But okay, going back to the point, fossils. So, uh, I claim that the true problem, and this brings us to Lacanian psychoanalysis, to what Lacan calls object A, the impossible objectal equivalent of the subject. Lacanian answer to Megasu would have been that the true problem is not the fossil out there, like was there life on earth before human beings, no problem. The true fossil are we ourselves. That is to say, it's part of our identity as humans that we are unable to see ourselves in becoming. We should not get caught into this problem of we and the animals, do we see animals the way they are in themselves? No, the problem is that we cannot see ourselves as well, what we are in itself, as it were. The pro the pro what's the problem? Let me give you a religious part. It's easy to claim, oh, we Christians cannot read properly pagan religions, we already reduced them to our uh, perspective. It's also easy to play these games with claiming, like all of my Jewish friends are claiming this, that you stupid Christians, you have a supersessionist view, you reduce us to just a step before, like, Judaism and then Christianity, you miss what Judaism is, and so on and so on. Maybe, but uh, 
Uh, what I'm saying is that what we miss even more is how to put it. What was Christ before he became a Christian? This is the true production. What kind of are we aware? What kind of monstrosity Jesus Christ was for the eyes of the Jews before he, as it were, created his own horizon of meaning with the story he told about himself. Because the way we perceive Christianity, it's already from the perspective of the book. In one of the Bruegel's paintings, is it Bruegel? I think so. On crucifixion, you know, it's this wonderful detail, which is historically true, theologically. <coughs> sorry, sorry. You have crucifixion, and then you have the two robbers crucified, and to one of them, one of them was good one, I think, you know. You see the good one already making confession to a priest who holds in his hand the Bible. You know that. <laughs> this is how we perceive the past. It's true. And it, it's always already here. So the problem is to see it in the coming. But, so, you see my point. What the, the truth of Christianity is, what was Christ before he became a Christian? That's the truly traumatic point. This is how we should read uh, uh, that uh, wonderful anecdote about Napoleon, you know, when Napoleon crowned himself as an emperor. You know the story. The Pope approached him and Napoleon took the crown from Pope's hand and put it on. Uh, but you know what Pope told then Napoleon? Pope was more he, he told Napoleon, I know why you are doing this to me. You want to destroy Christianity. And then the Pope went on, but believe me, you will fail. And I can tell you, because we, the church, are trying to do this already for 2000 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that, uh, maybe the whole of Christianity as institution is a struggle not against the pagan tradition, but against its own excess. And in a similar way, I claim, the whole of being human, symbolic stories and so on, is one struggle to control not our animal nature, but the excess which marked our break with nature. You find even, I repeating myself a little bit here, I know, you find traces of this even in uh, books like, sorry, in, uh, uh, in Kant's philosophy. For example, there is a wonderful passage in Kant's lesser-known Immanuel Kant's small text on education, where Kant proposes his famous thesis that man is an animal who needs a master. And then he went on, he goes on Kant, why? And he says, because only humans have a certain wild, he uses the same German, strange word, I forgot it, it means a kind of an unruliness wide freedom, unruliness, which, as Kant emphasized, has to be cultivated. It's not culture, but it's not natural. It's also not nature. It's a kind of a wild explosion of no-manal freedom, which is already a break with nature, but has to be cultivated. And which is why, again, only humans need a master. It's a very nice thesis, because it's totally undermines the idea that we need culture to control our the, the brutality of our animal nature, whatever. No, no. The brutality is precisely the Freudian 
the Freudian trial, the Freudian, the Freudian drive. You know who made this point? My, I'm sorry to quote him all the times, my favorite Catholic philosopher, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, in his Everlasting Man, it's a wonderful dialectical text, you can find it on the net, he precisely tries to imagine this scene of how the first humans must have appeared to natural animals around them. The quote, the simplest truth about man is that he is a very strange being, almost in the sense of being a stranger on the earth. In all sobriety, he has much more of the external appearance of one bringing alien habits from another land than of a mere growth of this one. He has an unfair advantage and an unfair disadvantage. Man cannot sleep in his own skin. He cannot trust his own instincts. He is at once a creator moving miraculous hands and fingers and a kind of cripple. He is wrapped in artificial bandages called clothes. He is propped on artificial crutches called furniture. His mind has the same doubtful liberties and the same wild limitations. Alone among the animals, he is shaken with the beautiful madness called laughter. As if he had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe hidden from the universe itself. Alone among the animals, he feels the need of averting his thought from the root realities of his own bodily being, and so on, and so on. So again, I, uh, this would be my first point, that the excess that needs to be explained, it's not can we understand the animals, it's uh, the other side, as it were, the true invisible fossil is what we humans are in ourselves, what was lost the moment we got caught into our ideological self-perception. Now, what is this point? Here I want to do some wild Darwinian uh, speculation. I am, well, okay, well, I will now really try to condense it. My first point here would have been that I disagree with those uh, 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 vulgar Darwinians who try to, when they try to naturalize human mind, who look for the solution in what human mind can do, its complexities and so on, you know, like we can talk, we can have in infinitesimal mathematics account and so on and so on. I claim that uh, maybe a much more productive way would have been to begin with what Alain Badiou noted when he pointed out that what defines a world are primarily not its positive features, but the way the structure of the world relates to its own inherent point of impossibility. And the true changes in the structure of the world are changes in the status of this impossibility. Which does not simply mean that the impossible becomes possible. It's just somehow integrated as impossible. For example, the big revolution in mathematics in the 19th century is when the so-called uh, 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 this uh, 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 imaginary numbers, the square root of minus one, 
became operative. Before, it was simply dismissed as nonsense. There can be no uh, square root of a negative number, so it's useless. Even to make an anti-Marxist step, even Marx in his mathematical manuscripts dismisses the square root of minus one as simple nonsense. But, you see, the big revolution of mathematics occurred when you prove that even if the square root of minus one is in a way impossible, nonsensical, you can use it, you can integrate it, it functions. My God, you can build buildings based on uh, uh, mathematical accounts which use the square root of minus one and so on and so on. So, uh, I claim it's not something similar with democracy and with capitalism. What is great about democracy is that it takes something which was for previous forms of government, simple traumatic impossibility. My God, the throne is empty. Let's, you know, you find this even in Stalinism, if they tell us. Like, you know, in Stalinism, always when the leader dies, usually people learn about it a couple of days later, because the void has to be filled in immediately. You cannot afford a couple of days where you don't know who is in power or not. But democracy integrates this and makes it the very, the very instrument of its, okay, relative stability. Or capitalism does the same. The impossibility of stability, the system always revolutionizes itself, it makes it the very mode of its, okay, the, the, uh, mobility. What I claim is that what if we should look for what makes us humans humans, rather at this level, not at what we do, but the change status of what we cannot do, the same integration of impossibility. What do I mean by this? Uh, I totally agree when you mention people like Dennett that they should be mentioned. They are not idiots. We can not, it's possible not to agree with them, but here and there they give good examples, they make a nice direct point. The one who is an idiot, I don't concede here, compromise is Steve Pinker. And the proof, in his, I forgot which book, he uh, confronts this problem of how is it that we cannot understand, naturalize our own consciousness, our own mind. And he tries to provide a simple evolutionary answer. His thinker's answer is that simply, of course, we cannot understand ourselves because our mind was not created in the course of evolutionary adaptive process for this aim. And he uses this metaphor. He says, uh, uh, in the same way that rabbits cannot understand infinitesimal <coughs> calculus or whatever, because simply it's not part of their life life work. They need this work to, to evade to evade foxes to to get to get uh, to get some stupid vegetables to eat whatever. In the same way we humans develop our intelligence for certain adaptive survival purposes sexual seduction, collective work, collaboration, and so on, not to solve metaphysical problems. How does our mind work, and so on, and so on. I agree, but there is one problem here, which is that although there are problems which we cannot solve, maybe, metaphysical problems, 
There is one problem, one crucial difference. Uh, rabbits are not obsessed by infinitesimal calculus. It's simply external. They don't care about it. But we, how is it that we humans obsessively care again and again all the time for a problem for which, which has no adaptive value and so on and so on? And here further, what can be shown if you look really closely at the history of science is how uh, is how uh, for example if you look at the development of modern machinery and so on it's not in a vulgar Marxist way that you know first they were using machinery for concrete economic purposes and then also no, it started as a superfluous aesthetic endeavor you know in the court of Louis XIV they had many ma- only later they said, oh my God, we have this pure useless excess, why don't we apply it to some... So I claim that, I claim that, that uh, what if human intelligence is basically defined at the zero level? It's not a positive achievement. It's more a kind of a getting stuck with a certain impossibility. Like, I want to resolve it, but I cannot and I don't drop it, I go on and on and on. I tended to say that uh, since plasticity was so much celebrated today, but are you aware, okay, I will tell you the source. It's my good friend from Duke, now he is somewhere else, a Turkish anthropologist, but he enjoyed years ago a top position at Duke University, uh, uh, the there, who uh, uh, told me he made himself experiments with AIDS. And told me how, if anything, when confronted to a libidinal object, apes are much more plastic, you know. Like, you propose to an ape two sexual partners, one obviously more attractive than the other. <laughs> then, okay, first the ape selects the more attractive one, tries to, if it doesn't go, he said, okay, fuck off, and goes to the second one. <laughs> With humans, no, you, you know, the more impossible it is, if anything, humans are much more fixed. An impossibility, you, you remain, you get, you get stuck onto it. And I claim that this, maybe, is precisely, this is precisely what Freud calls drive. This fixation on the impossibility, this. You know, you fail, but you repeat it. You, you kind of get caught into a, get caught into a, you get caught into a circle. Uh, uh, so now, in order to avoid me getting caught into a circle, it is here. I think that my usual polemical point against but you that. Uh, I think we should reject, I tend to reject this duality of human animal and subject as the being of an event. In the sense of we are human animals caught into our ordinary pleasures uh, and so on, utilitarian, servicing the goods. But then from time to time the miracle happens, we are interpolated by the event and so on and so on. Usually, Alain, but you, is attacked here for his idealism. Like, oh my God, where does this come, this uh, event? Isn't this a remainder of some metaphysics or whatever? I tend to formulate exactly the opposite criticism. 
if there is something to be learned from not only psychoanalysis, but even from good, really good Darwinians, you mentioned him like Stephen J. Gould and so on, he said, the problem is not there is no subject of the event. That is to say, the event should be reduced to or deduced from antagonisms, whatever, of human animal. There is a lesson from psychoanalysis, is that there is no human animal. That is to say, this image of a human, if there is any meaning of, in psychoanalysis, is that we humans, in our, as it were, not only as beings of event, but in our, as it were, nature itself, we don't strive for balance, happiness, and so on. We sabotage. Here, American ourselves all the time. Here, again, American constitution is wrong. You know, the pursuit of happiness. No, it's the pursuit of unhappiness, which defines us. So what I want to say is that uh, I see the problem there in this idea of human. I think that what but you calls human animal, of course, there exists something like human animal, but it's strictly a secondary ideological formation. And I think, this would be my point, that the, the duality of human animal and subject of the event is not enough. There must be a third level, which I precisely call the Freudian drive, which is something which already disturbs nature, but it's not yet culture. Okay, I don't want now to go on for too long because one can develop things here very much in detail. I try to develop this a little bit in my parallax view when I have a long chapter on debating the evolutionary uh, 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 biology and so on. I'm in great sympathy with them. But what I claim is that reading, okay, not them, some 20, 30 books <laughs> I always notice how whenever evolutionary biologists try to portray that magic moment when out of animal instincts human thought, whatever you call it, emerges they systematically refer to the same metaphor, which is the metaphor of a self-relating circle, like one of them uses the wonderful metaphor of how you know in Skype uh, sorry, in, uh, 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 in ice dancing, how the dancer, you make this movement that you pirouette. turn. Yeah, pirouette. And then you say, human thought is as if this pirouette starts to turn in itself and magically you persist in the air. Another biologist uses this wonderful metaphor. He says that usually we are caught in this distance of uh, stimulus uh, reaction. But that what characterizes human being is that what is for animals a secondary reaction that we generate our own stimulus. It's, it's a, a certain self-referential closure which they describe, which I think, again, is precisely the Freudian drive. And let me be here very clear. I'm not saying this is absolutely not meant in a non-naturalist way. I'm not saying somebody from above had to screw things up for us. No, I claim that 
Here I agree with what you, Raymond, saying, and I would have said, this happened probably. If we were to get an answer, this is my dream, it, it would have been, if we get probably a totally stupid, not interesting answer. Maybe something went genetically wrong. Some, something went simply wrong. We got stuck. There is no, I don't believe in great origin of humanity. It was something which malfunctioned. And we were born humans when we started to enjoy this malfunctioning. <laughs> and all the big things then, you see, this is my problem with dialectics. That we, we got so dynamic precisely because originally we got stuck. This human means you find that a libidinal object and you got stuck to it. You failed to reach it, but you... So, again, there is something here which I think nonetheless raises a couple of questions. The one question is, which is totally legitimate, which was raised many times today. Uh, how can something like this happen in the order of nature? I think one way, the wrong one, would have been, of course, to say, nonetheless, another dimension intervenes, blah, blah. No. I think a much more, and here I refer to what you said, uh, uh, another much more radical dimension should be mentioned here. What if the only way to account for things like this, human symbolic order and so on, is to claim that uh, you know, the moment, the moment you ask the problem, you formulate the problem in these terms, we have a complete natural causal order, and then, oh, how can human freedom consciousness emerge? Here you get caught, either it's supernatural, or you must do what even Deneb in Freedom Evolves does. He nonetheless claims that ultimately there is no freedom that what we experience as freedom is simply when we can freely, like without obstacles, follow our predispositions and so on and so on. But there is, I claim, another solution, which does not mean that freedom is just, as they like to call it, user's illusion, but it also doesn't mean a higher tendency that intervenes. It's simply what if reality objective reality is ontologically not all. I think we must include, and this is for me answering, uh, 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 who formulated this question, you, yeah, uh, this is for me the lesson to be drawn from quantum physics and so on. I'm totally materialist. I hate this idea of, you know, quantum physics, oh my god, our mind is creating reality or whatever. No, but there is one lesson of quantum physics, which is again, reality in itself is not fully ontologically constituted. There are gaps in reality. Or, to put it in another way, virtuality is not exclusively a human symbolic damage. You can have virtual dimension, void, and so on, the effectivity of the void already in, already in reality itself. Here, back to Alain, I would like to supplement you, because would you allow me just really to conclude just one quote from Alain, but you, which I find uh, really problematic. 
uh, it is from his, in English, theoretical writings, when he asked this elementary question, where does event come from, if all there is is being, the order of being. Here is the quote. We must point out that, in what concerns its material, the event is not a miracle. What I mean is that what composes an event is always extracted from a situation, always related back to a singular multiplicity, to its state, to the language that is connected to it, and so on. In fact, so as not to succumb to an obscure theory of creation ex nihilo, we must accept that an event is nothing but a part of a given situation nothing but a fragment of being. Now, this is my problem. If an event is nothing but a fragment of being, why cannot we describe this as such? Because his whole description is that an event cannot be reduced to the order of being. I claim that here we get the Badius secret Kantianism. And although he will take me for saying this, his secret link to finitude. Because here he exactly reproduces the Kantian duality. You know how Kant says in, towards the end of his critique, the practice internum, that we are only free from our finitude. Kant said, tries to imagine what were to happen to us if we humans were to gain full access to things in themselves, how things really are. And his answer, well known, is we would turn into puppets. We would lose our freedom because we would, even if we were to act ethically, we would have done it out of a simple pragmatic insight. Things are like this, I have to, we would, in other words, uh, so our freedom, our ethical activity and so on, is only, only emerges from the standpoint of our dignity. Now, we, I have here a similar problem. If the event is nothing but a fragment of being, why then cannot we reduce it to being? Its only consequent answer can be because of our finity. But I would like to say no. It's not only a fragment of being, the point is precisely that the being is incomplete. You must introduce the non-all of being. The, in other words, uh, and this is, okay, if we get me too far, uh, you know, but you have this ontology of multiplicity, multiplicity, so multiplicities, and then you have the one comes secondary. I think that we need maybe a different ontology, but I don't have time to do it now. Thank you. I think this is an excellent point to start a discussion. Um, I would like okay. to pull that out. Congratulations. If you made it this far, I'm impressed. Uh, 80 minutes or so later, and um, many, many comments and jokes and asides later, you have learned perhaps something about animals, uh, at least as Slavoj Žižek sees them. A quick reminder, uh, our next episode, which will be online in a week or two, features a three-way conversation among myself, historian of science Etienne Benson, 
and media theorist UC Parika. Etienne will be discussing his book, Wired Wilderness, which uh, presents the history of scientists' uh, efforts to study animals in the wild through the use of media and surveillance technologies. UC Parika will be discussing his book, Insect Media, uh, which he, deter uh, he, he terms uh, an archaeology of insects and technology. So uh, I think it's a, a really, a really great episode. Actually, the, my favorite of the of the interviews that have been recorded so far. So I hope you will make it uh, online for that next uh, next episode in cultural technologies. Thank you.